Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are uh, picking back up with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is our doctrinal statement. Um, but the reason that we're studying is because it is the major doctrines of our faith. It's what we believe, and obviously what we're trying to cover as we go through what we believe is why we believe it, and that means looking at the Scripture, etc. We are going to do a great deal of looking at the Scripture today, um, a lot of verses that I'll be reading to you as we go through, uh, because a lot of them are not in your in the confession itself, in the footnotes. Uh, hopefully you had a chance to read chapter 2, which is of God and of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, the Holy Trinity. And um, uh, Spirit's coming later. Anyway, uh, hopefully you had a chance to read that and uh, look at at least paragraph 1, which we'll be focusing on today. And um, we'll move on from there. Um, so first of all, let's just recognize that, uh, almost in a way of introduction, before we read paragraph one, every religion claims their own God or gods. Even atheists, claiming there is no God, but put man in a position of ultimate authority and chance as the deity over human interactions. In other words, to an atheist, man controls man. There is no fate. There is no deity. There is, but, so my point is, everyone believes this doesn't matter who they are. They do believe in a God, whether it's themselves, whether it's man, whether it's God or false God, right? Other religions all define their own gods and sometimes attempt to advance their position by diminishing others. This is frequent, right? We're not going to spend uh, time in class talking about Shiva. We're not going to spend time in class talking about Allah. We're not going to do that. We're going to mention them as we go when it's appropriate, but... We don't need to focus on the false gods. That makes sense? We need to focus on the true God. Richard Dawkins said, defining Yahweh, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, Philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I don't think he likes him. <laughs> Dawkins promotes atheism and science above all else. He does not believe in absolute truth, except there is no God. So he doesn't believe that anyone can know absolutely anything is true. Except there's no God. Now that itself makes no sense, does it? But you see the point. So instead of Dawkins just talking about atheism or science, he has to look at ways that he can criticize God. Holy God. God of the Bible. God of the Old Testament in this case. He has to do this. Why? He has to try to diminish him to try to promote his own view. Today's culture of moral relativism tells us that no one can know absolute truth. That's what Dawkins says, that everything is relative to your personal experience. This is true of the emerging church. It's true of the emerging church. It's horrible. The emerging church movement is based on moral relativism. What does that mean, moral relativism? It means that the morals, morals, what's right and what's wrong, are relative. They vary. Right? What would be a good example of this? Here would be a good example. Plane crashes on a mountain. Five survivors. Trapped on the mountain. 
starving to death. They decide to pick the weakest one, kill them, and eat them. Is that wrong? Yes, it's wrong. Yes, it's, you can, no question, that is wrong. But some would say that was okay. Why? Moral relativism. Because at that time, in that situation, either they would all die or one would die. So we make a judgment and we change what's right or wrong based on the situation. See a problem with this? Now what happens as soon as they kill that guy if the helicopter flies over? Hmm. Didn't think about that. So, that's a true story. That's a true story. Moral relativism means there can't be absolute truth. Right? Because if it's absolutely wrong to kill somebody at any time, period, then it doesn't matter what the situation is, it's wrong. Now I'm saying murder. I don't mean kill like in warfare or something like this. I'm saying murder. That naturally extends to our understanding of it there is of that naturally extends to our understanding of it there is a God and who he is. If there is no absolute truth, there is no knowing what God is, he can be whatever we each decide he is. And that's the emerging church. Who is God? He's what he says to you. It's what you believe. That's what God is. But what about the Bible? It's what it means to you. We can't know for sure what it means. It's what it means to you. That's your truth. If I believe something different than you believe, based on the same scripture verse, I see it one way, you see it another way, we're both right. Moral relativism. It does matter what you believe about God. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are ways of death. Okay, so it doesn't matter if man thinks it's right. There is still a way that seems right to him that is, leads to death, destruction, punishment. Proverbs eight thirty six. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Hmm. Hmm. Let's keep going. Christians can speak with certainty of truth because the very creator of the universe gave us truth in his word. Second Peter 1.3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So he's given us all knowledge unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Well, how do we know? He gave it to us in his word. He gave it to us in his word. That's why. Why do we need the Bible? Because our nature is a sin nature. We are fallen. We no longer have a perfect intellect. We no longer are able to discern things perfectly. We get in the way. As a result, we need the scriptures to clarify things to us. We need the scriptures to know what's right or what's wrong. Did Cain know it was wrong to slew Abel? Yes. Was the Bible out before that? No. Thousands of years later. But it was still wrong. Right? Now, you say, well, yeah, but he knew. Why do you need the Bible? Okay. I'm glad you asked that. So, what about kidnapping? Is that wrong? Is it wrong? Yeah. What's the Bible call it? Man-stealing. Man-stealing. Right? What are you stealing when you man-steal? I mean, if you release them, you can keep them. Hmm? What are you stealing? 
Liberty. Liberty is true. What? Time. That's what the Bible says. You're stealing their time. What's the one thing you can never get back? Time. You can never get more of. Time. Right? So that's a sin, to take steal people's time. If we were more conscious of that on a daily basis, we'd be a lot happier, wouldn't we? If we actually paid attention to how much time we steal from other people by wasting it. Do you ever feel like that that happens to you? Let me just tell you, you do. You do it. You steal people's time by having conversations or doing things that you didn't need to do that just took a whole bunch of time. You took their time. Don't do that. Now, if everybody at the end of the service today, like, gets up, walks to the door, like, you got the wrong impression. That's not what I'm saying. Well, fellowship's good, too. All right. The Baptist Confession articulates the truth about God in a comprehensive and a consolidated way. All right. So here's paragraph one. And obviously, it's a big paragraph. We are going to break it down. All right. The Lord our God is but one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so if you want to know who is God, that's who he is. Now there's a lot of words there along the lines, I hate that you would draw this, this is parallel, but along the lines of the Richard Dawkins quote that we just did, where there's a lot of words that might not be clear exactly what they meant, all right? So if you didn't know everything that Richard Dawkins was calling Yahweh, uh, that's okay. Uh, ask me about it after. I'll tell you whatever the word was. But this also is like that, right? So there's so, like immutable. So you might say, well, I've heard that before, but not exactly. It means unchanging. Immutable means unchanging. Right? We're going to cover these things. So we're going to work our way through all of these. But this is a very succinct and comprehensive dis- uh, uh, definition of who God is. All right. So we're going to break this down right from the beginning. All right, so if you didn't have an outline yet, please take one off the table. And again, these are from uh, Sam Waldron's uh, writings on the 1689. Uh, He has a a great uh, book, very comprehensive book about the 1689, explaining everything. And there was a Baptist preacher that actually uh, gave him an outline that he had prepared for doing it. And so Sam included it in his book. And uh, I wish I remembered the pastor's name. I probably should learn that, but at any rate... I'm giving credit to Sam, who gave it to somebody else. Dr. Waldron, I should, because we're not on a first-name basis. <laughs> anyway, all right. So there is only, we get off right off the bat. I mean, this is pretty straightforward, right? The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. So there is only one God, not many. Now, let's not be confused about that, because obviously there are other religions that have many gods, right? 
They have many gods. We see some in the Bible, but we know of others, Eastern religions, etc., many that have many gods. Ours is not that way. It is one God. We have to be very careful. We're not going to cover it until a later paragraph when we talk about the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. That is not three gods. It is one God. Three parts. We're not going to go any further down that path right now. But right now, let's just remember that there is only one God. So this is the footnotes that you should have already read, which are uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and 6, and then Deuteronomy 6, 4, and then I've listed a couple others. So let me just read those to you. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and 6 is concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered into sacrifice unto idols. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, that there is none other God but one. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. This is a clear definition. And by the way, you'll notice there that there actually this verse actually is one of the very important verse because it's equating Lord Jesus Christ with the one God. There's not a mix of that. Some versions don't have that in that, those verses. Those verses take that out. Deuteronomy 6.4. This is, this is the Shammah, and this is uh, uh, basically the beginning of the Ten Commandments. But hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord is one Lord. Mark 12, 32, And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. I'm not going to go into even the context of that, but again, here's somebody talking to Christ and saying this to him. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. James 2, 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Now that's an important distinction, isn't it? The demons know there's one God. They know there's not many gods. They don't want us to believe that there's one God, but they know there's one God, and they tremble. Next point. He is the only living God. So he's the only, let let me just say the right emphasis there, the right emphasis on the right syllable. (laughs) There is only one living God. That's the point here. There's only one living God. So we're not talking about idols or dead prophets, etc. You think about this. Do, uh, here I go right away. Are, do Muslims believe that Muhammad is alive? No, they, they know he's dead. They know he's dead. How about Shiva? How about Buddha? How about any of those gods? Were they people? Were they alive? Or are they dead? Every religion you look at, except for our religion, believes that their God either was never human or was never truly alive. They existed some other way. They're dead. 1 Samuel 17, 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to this man that killeth the Philistine and taketh away reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You remember that? Right? Where that's happening. Okay. Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 84, 2. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Matthew 16, 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, 
written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. So we have a living God. Second, his independence or his self-existence. So the paragraph actually has the phrase, whose subsistence is in and of himself. His existence differs from every created being. There was no becoming. He is. All other beings have been created. He has always been. You understand the distinction on this? This is actually also in some of the confessions that we use. Some of the creeds that we use. God has always been. God is of himself existent and of himself sufficient. Now, the difficulty is with this and some of these other characteristics that we're going to talk through here is that it's difficult for us in our finite existence to fully grapple with the concepts. Okay, now look, I'm just going to say this, and I hope Branson and Paul aren't going to be liars here, but if all of us are honest, you cannot fully comprehend the idea that God is outside of time. What you do is you just accept it. It's true. How, how, can you, how do you grapple with this idea that God is outside of time? Has God spoken to people? He has spoken to people. And when he's spoken to people, did he use words? Just shake your head. I'm giving you an easy one. This is a softball picture. Yes, he did. Now, do you know when I say things, like right now I'm saying something, right? It's taking me a couple of seconds to make a statement. You recognize this. Time is passing while I make that statement. Yet God speaks to people. It takes time for them to hear him, but he is outside of time. He actually goes in and out of time continuously. Continuously. You understand that he's outside of time. That means he's not watching the timeline of human events and the creation. You understand this? Now this is how we think of God. We think he's in the throne, usually higher, looking down, and he sees how this is playing out. He knows what's coming, but he's oh, here we are. It's all gone, and here we are. But you understand that God, that's not how it is? The world was created at the same time we're having this conversation. Why? He's not in time. He's outside of time. He sees it all. He sees it all. Who will say, I have that down pat, no problem. I totally get that. You can't say it. It's difficult because we're finite. Now, we can, we can see, you know, people have said about it, how people describe it. They use some phrase. They use something. They try to make you so you can get it. But the truth of the matter is, is that we have a hard time grappling with that. We have a hard time grappling with that. You want to know another one? This just, these are like freebies now. Slightly rabbit trails. How about God's righteousness, his holiness, and his mercy? You can't really look at those without considering God's patience, right? Because if he's God, and he knows what man is going to do, 
because he sees it all at the same time. He knows he's going to do evil things, and he's a holy and righteous God. What keeps him from snuffing that out? Because his creation is violating his own laws. Ooh, mercy, patience. Yeah. Just, he's, he's not wondering if you're going to mess up. He knows you're already messed up in the future. He sees it right now. He sees what you're doing tomorrow right now. That's weird. And, but we try to put that on God. We try to make him like us. He isn't like us. His existence is way beyond our comprehension. All we can do is accept what his word says he is and just move on. Try to explain somebody the time concept that I just mentioned. Look, that's t- that's t- I could talk for hours about that, but I'd be stealing your time. That's not right. So my point is, is that try to explain that to somebody. You blow their mind. You know we're not called to explain that to people? Called to share the gospel. Right? You're not going to convince somebody to be a believe in Christ by explaining the concept of time. Right? It's not going to be part of it. God's holiness? Well, that could be part of it. Why? Because you're a sinner. You're guilty. Deserve death. Right? Let's turn around from the rabbit trail and come back out of the hole. All right. There was no becoming. He's always been. Difficult? It's just true. God is of himself existent and of himself sufficient. Nobody else created God. He doesn't need anybody else. He doesn't need anything. He did not need to create the universe. He did not need to create man. He does not need anyone to come to heaven. He is not lonely. He does not need the angels. Understand this. I don't know if we do understand that. We accept it. But we really, we think he needs us. We think he needs us. No, he doesn't. Can God stop anything he wants? Any evil, sin, bad stuff, can God stop it? Of course, you have to say yes, right? He's God. So then why does he need us? You think it's to stop it? Does he need you to stop people from sinning? Does he need you to get somebody saved? Doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. But he can use you. He can use us. He can use us to do his will. You know why he would do that? What was that? Say that. For his glory. Not for ours. Say, why did this bad thing happen to me? I just lost everything I own. I have nothing now. I'm living in the street. Why did that happen? Well, could God have stopped that? Could have. Didn't. Why didn't he? For his glory. Do we deserve it? Yeah. Deserve anything bad. Why? We're sinners. One sin. Guilty. Deserving of death. Anything that doesn't happen to you is not death? 
That's a reprieve. We don't think that way. We think the other way. God should be taking care of me. That's Joel Osteen, right? If you're one of God's, well, you should, everything should be happy. It should be smooth sailing. Everything should be great. That's just not reality. That's not what the Scripture tells us. The Scriptures do not tell us that God wants you to live your best life. That's false. It's not true. God wants you to obey him and serve him. And you will be rewarded in heaven. doesn't say you'll be rewarded on earth. You think the missionaries to the Yaka Indians planned on dying on that river? Being killed by, the, by those that they went to minister to? They didn't plan on that. Were they living their best life then? Uh, no, it was over. But did God use that for his glory? He sure did. Many of those Aka Indians came to him. They believe on him. They were saved. We aren't here because God needs us. He is sufficient in of himself for everything. Now, because he is righteous and holy, he does not lie. So he says this is what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. He said he's not going to destroy the world again by water, by a flood, right? Remember this? Genesis, not going to destroy the world again by flood. Guess what's not going to happen? The world's not going to be destroyed by water. I don't care if the polar ice caps melt tomorrow. The world will not be destroyed by water. East and West Coast will be underwater, but the rest of us, the holy ones in the center of the country, won't be. <laughs> that's a joke. I have to say it because someone on Sermon Audio listening in California will be upset at me, but that's, not, that's absolutely not true. You understand what I'm saying? There's no way that God is going to allow the earth to be destroyed by water. That doesn't mean there's not going to be hurricanes. It doesn't mean there's not going to be rain sides. It doesn't mean there's not going to be floods. There is going to be, but they're localized. Because he said he's not going to destroy it that way. Right? God made promises, and he will fulfill the promises, which is how we know that all of a sudden, entire existence is not going to end at this moment. It's not going to end tomorrow. It's not going to end next week. And by the way, if the country falters, if the economy collapses, if an EMP wipes out the world, a solar flare wipes out the world, whatever happens, it's not going to be over. Why? Because he made promises about what's going to happen. That hadn't happened yet. Does that mean that people aren't going to die? No, it doesn't mean that. People are going to die. People are dying every second, aren't they? Sometimes more, sometimes less. God doesn't need us. He is sufficient in of himself. If you ever have any fears about how is this all going to work out, you need to take a pause, take a breath, and realize God is in control. There is nothing that's surprising to him. There is nothing that he doesn't know how to deal with. There is nothing that he doesn't already know exactly how it's going to work out. He already seen it. Let's get into the whole blow your mind time thing again, right? But this is the truth. We should not be anxious for tomorrow. And we should not be anxious, by the way, about yesterday. It doesn't matter how anxious you are about what happened to you when you were young, when you were just married, when you were last week. There's not a thing you can change. No matter how anxious you are about what you did, you can't change it. And no matter how anxious you are about what could happen, 
well, what if this happens? What if we lose this? What if they're in an accident? What if I get sick? What if it, you cannot control any of that? All you can do is try to live where you are now and be content now. Can we learn from the past? Yes, we should. Scriptures are clear about that. Should we prepare for the future? Yes, scriptures are clear about that. But anxiousness, we're not to be. We're to be content. We're to be content. Right? Look, you easily could have gotten an accident on the way in today. Did anybody get in an accident? No. And you know what? If you did get in an accident, more than likely, not every time, more than likely, you couldn't have controlled it. Right? If you're driving down the road and the road's driving fine and everything, and all of a sudden it's slippery and you slide off the road, you couldn't have controlled it. Now, if you're coming out to a light and you don't step on the brake and you hit somebody in the intersection, you could have controlled that one. But you understand that once the accident happens, you no longer can control the fact that you were in the accident. It's in the past. We're way too worried about what happened or what might happen, and we have no idea what's going to happen, and we can't change what did happen. Let's be content on where we are now. Learn from the past and look forward to the future that God's going to control things the way they are. We should just obey him. That's it. Let's look at a couple verses for this. Number two, this is footnote number two, of course. Jeremiah 10.10. 10. But the Lord is also, I'm sorry, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. And at his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to, hide, uh, to abide his indignation. Then Isaiah 48, 12, hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Isaiah 44, 6, thus saith the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no God. God is God. He existed always. We get in the way of thinking about that because we get in the way of time. Because it's hard for us to comprehend outside of time. Right? Does this make sense? All right. Incomprehensibility or mystery. So paragraph one continues with this phrase, infinite in being and perfection whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. All right. So in his being and perfection, God is limitless, immeasurable. You can't, there's no way for you to get your arms around how big he is. There's no way for you to understand limitlessness. Every term that you use to define something can't deal with this. They say, well, I've seen some big numbers in my time. Okay, <laughs> I believe you. Well, what about the whole, you know, the universe? All these galaxies, God's bigger than that. How much bigger? He's not measurable. That means that our human concepts of space are unable to measure God. He cannot be measured. In everything God is, he is also a God of absolute perfection. He's infinitely perfect. Okay? He's infinite. He's perfect. How many of you have ever had something that was infinite? 
You've never had anything that's infinite. Why? There's an end to everything. Car repairs. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Taxes. <laughs> but you understand, right? There is everything. Even like you think about, um, uh, there's a symbol we have for infinity, right? What is it? It looks like a sideways eight. It looks like a sideways eight, right? Why? Because if you follow your line along it, it doesn't end, right? Except if you turn the page. Right? It ended. There is no measurement of infinity that we can grasp. But God is infinite. That kind of has to do with the fact that he's limitless and immeasurable. And in those almost concepts that we can't quite grasp, he's perfect. There is no part of him that's not perfect. Again, difficult to get our heads around this. God is perfect in every aspect of himself, everything. That means that there is never a question of what he does, allows, says. None of that ever is done wrong. It's never done wrong. You say, well, yeah, but. <laughs> you know, as soon as you say, yeah, but, it's a problem. At any rate, if you say, yeah, but, you know, this happened God could have done it this way. Have you ever said that to yourself? Be honest and admit you have. Look. He could have done it another way. But he did it the perfect way. Ooh. That doesn't feel so good. What do you mean? This bad thing happened to my family member. Whatever it is. Hurt, injured, death, divorce, whatever. This bad thing happened. Why did God allow that? Because it was the perfect thing that should have happened. What do you mean? Why does anything happen? For his glory. For his glory. So does he allow sin to happen for his glory? He sure does. Where do we see a fantastic example of that? Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Remember this? He actually says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened for his glory, for God's glory. The children of Israel went through more suffering than they had to in our minds. But in God's mind, it was the perfect amount. That's another brain exploder. It's a noodle cooker. It's like a noodle cooker. It's like uh, canning with the lid closed tight. <sighs> he is beyond our total comprehension in his being and in his essence. So can we comprehend the concept of holy? I would say we can, right? We can at least get our hands around that a little bit. Not that we can compare it to anything else, but we can get our hands, our arms around that a little bit. Our mind, can, we can kind of comprehend this concept, right? How about merciful? Yes. How about, you know, there's lots of characteristics of God that we can get our minds around because, first of all, we maybe experience them personally, right? And not perfectly, but personally, or we witness it personally, right? We get our arms around that a little bit. 
But his being in his essence is beyond our comprehension. How can he exist outside time? That in its time's an easy one, right? I can go to that one all day. Time is an easy one because you can't comprehend that. How does his being exist outside of time, outside of reality? It's where we're at. Whoa. Very weird. But true. Our perception or experience must never limit how big God is, quote-unquote. In our finite existence, we can never gain the comprehension that only God has. Everything, yeah, everything in creation is finite, therefore nothing may approach the perfection that belongs to God alone. Everything is finite. So that in itself means that nothing that we experience, see, know about, period, can come close to God. It's all finite. Now how do we mean it's finite? That means it's limited, right, in time. That's what finite is. So if you think about this, all right, so let me throw another noodle cooker at you. you. Your soul is finite. It's finite. Is your soul going to end? No. Your soul is not going to end. But your soul had a beginning. Your soul had a beginning. Right? You will ne- your soul will never be infinite. Because it had a beginning. Right? Unending. But it had a beginning. There is nothing besides God that's infinite. Everything else is finite. It all started someplace. It all started. Therefore, nothing can approach the perfection that belongs to God alone. Nothing. Why? It all began. It all began. God is perfect not because we set up a standard for God to meet, but because he's God and everything God should be. It doesn't matter if we think that God is not perfect because of this, or if we say, well, God's perfect. Why? Well, he's perfect because he does this and he does this. No. He's perfect because he's perfect. It doesn't matter if we say he's perfect or not. Does that make sense? It's, it's pretty basic. I mean, honestly, that should kind of be our approach to everything. Truth is truth, not because we say it. Truth is truth because the Bible says it. Because God says it. It's not true because we think it's true. So it doesn't matter if Richard Dawkins says all those things about Yahweh, about God, and he says, this is who God is. Well, he's wrong. Why? Because that's not what God's word says. That's not who God is. It doesn't matter if he agrees or not. And this is true for us all the time. We, we personally all have problems with this. If God's word says something about an issue that you're considering, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. You have to go with God's word. The only time that you're right in your opinion is when you agree with God's word. Does that make sense? And let me just tell you, to make sure that you're getting this, and I'm saying this because this is true for me, I know this is true for me, but every one of us should accept this is true for you. You're not always right. You can read a verse in the scripture and have absolutely convinced that this is what that verse means, and you could be wrong. You could be wrong. 
How do we know this? Well, first of all, Peter talks about this when he refers to Paul's writings. They're difficult to understand and grasp. But we see this also happening in scriptures. Multiple times we see the churches that epistles are written to that have differing views. All the churches did not use tongues like Corinthians did. Do we have different interpretations about what Corinthians says about using tongues today? Are there different interpretations of that? There really are, aren't there? And you know what? You're going to say, well, well, we know what that means, though. We know the right way. What's the right way? Tongues have ceased. They're not happening anymore. Are you with me? You should probably shake your head yes. I don't think any of you speak in tongues. I haven't heard you speak in tongues. Probably you agree, but you're not sure where I'm going to go, so you're hesitating. <laughs> anyway, I've talked to pastors of churches that speak in tongues, and I've had the discussion with them. And they have well-reasoned scriptural reasons to believe what they believe. Really hard to argue with them. I mean, to the point that I was like, hmm, what do I believe? <laughs> That's hard. Do, is baptism by submersion 100% completely, there's not even a doubt, a question, or anything else, it shouldn't be by sprinkling, but it should be by submersion? Now, what do we say? Yes. What do Presbyterians say? No. And there's some really smart Presbyterians. Guys that we quote. Guys that we read their commentary. But they differ than us on that. Are we so egocentric that we believe that everything that we believe has to be true and everyone else is wrong on every issue? You need to have some doubt in yourself. Because if you believe that, you are totally narcissistic. You're believing everything is about you and what you think. It's just not true. We're wrong. On what? I don't know. <laughs> but we are. How do we know that? We're, me we're people. We're, we're sinners. We have intellects that are failed. And if you say, well, yeah, but I know, I've read, you know, Spurgeon said, and, you know, so I said, well... Guess what? Some of those same people quote the same passages and say it's something different. We're not right all the time. We need to have a little doubt in ourselves to make sure that God can speak to us. Because it, is there anybody here who thinks they're as mature as they need to be? You are all, you're there. That chart back there, order salutis, yeah, it didn't apply to you. You've achieved full sanctification prior to heaven. You're already there. You've arrived. Now you're just coasting home to glory. No. We're all still growing. We all still need to learn. We all still need to stretch. We all still need to learn more about what God wants us to be. That starts with some doubt in ourselves. Like, maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I'm not handling these situations the way I should. Maybe I should be doing something different when God throws this in my path, allows this to happen. Does this make sense? We have to remember that God is the one who's achieved perfection. We haven't. You can say, well, I know that. I went to tie my shoe the other day and I knocked over a glass on the floor, blah, 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 whatever. It's nothing to do with that. Really. It has to do with us thinking that we're all set. We've already learned everything we need to learn. We know everything we need to know. We're 100% correct all the time. 
There's nothing else we need to learn. There's nothing we need to improve. There's nothing we need to change. Yes, you do. I don't know what it is for you. I don't, I, I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is for me, right? I, I can almost can't guarantee you this. It's more than one thing. It's more than one thing for me. It's more than one thing for you. We should be always examining, always looking for how we should improve, how we should change. What is God trying to tell us? The moment we stop, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. As believers, we can be satisfied with no other God than the one only true God who has revealed himself in Christ. As believers, we can be satisfied with no other God than the only true God who has revealed himself in Christ. He calls us to strive to be like him on a creaturely level as he is perfect, which is, of course, exactly what I was talking about. Stole my own thunder. Okay, so footnote number three is Exodus 3.14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So how does God define himself? He says he is I am. I am. I am what? I am. Everything. How, how do you get your arms around that? I am. That's all you had to say. Tell them, I am sent you. Oh. You know, the deep thinkers in the children of Israel, the righteous, they're like, whoa. Yeah. Hadn't quite heard it that way before, but yeah, that's who he is. That's scary. Maybe they thought that. We don't know. Job 11, 6-9. And that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are doable of that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. In other words, what he's saying, look, you can't know who God is. You can't measure him. You can't, the highest places you can think of, the lowest places you can think of, the broadest places you can think of, he's bigger than that. Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and great and of great power his understanding is infinite. Matthew 5.48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So there's your goal. There's your command right there. It couldn't be really much clearer, although maybe there's some that have a disagreement on how that's interpreted. But it says, Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what's your goal? It's perfection. That's your goal. Perfection. Let's see. I can think of three people that have done that so far. Let's see. Raise your hand if you've done it. <laughs> Tom says he's done it. <laughs> right? So is this a goal that we should all still be striving for? Yes, of course. 1 Peter 5.10 But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Okay. God is spirit. So, paragraph one, 
He's a most pure spirit. God is a spirit not having a body like created beings. Now, we're going to, I don't want to get too far ahead, but let's just make this statement first of all, that he does not have a body like created beings. So that could be sinking into your mind a little bit there, but let's just keep going. Christianity is a religion of the ear, not the eye. Hence, no graven images or visual representations of God are allowed in worship. So listen to what it says here, Exodus 24 through 6. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them who love me and keep my commandments. And, of course, you recognize this is one of the Ten Commandments. The point here is, is that we are not worshiping a God because we can see what he looks like. We're not focusing on what we can see and worshiping that. That's idol worship. That's idol worship. God is incomprehensible in our minds. Now, does he, which we're going to cover, give us some ideas of seeing him by using terms that we understand? Yes. Yes. Like, for instance, God sits on his throne. Okay, what does that look like to you? Well, you'll probably picture somebody, white robes, sitting on some ornate huge chair. Right? I mean, do you, do you not think of that? You probably do. And because you're thinking of somebody, a king or somebody sitting on a throne, right? Except God doesn't have a body like us. If he sits on a throne, is he literally sitting like he had to rest his legs? No. That's an anthropomorphism. It's for us to use a representation that we understand to understand what he's describing or what the scriptures are describing. So the idea of not having an idol is we don't want to focus on the thing that is, that is God. Why? Why did they say this? Like, look, are all images actually forbidden? Period. You got any pictures on your phone? You got an image, don't you? You got a little statue of a little horse? Kids have the stuff like that, stuffies, right? Baby doll. Those are images. They're not forbidden. We don't think they're forbidden. Look, did God put an image in the temple? He did. What was it? Cherubim. Where? On the Ark of the Covenant, mercy seat, graven image of cherubim. But that wasn't what was worshipped. See, the idea of having the graven image of the cherubim wasn't a sin. God commanded it to be done. It was put in the holy of holy of the temples. But they didn't worship the cherubim. It wasn't a graven image of God. See this? It wasn't a graven image of God. Why? You, how can you somehow encapsulate God in a statue? You can't. You can't. There's no, there's no, there's, it's beyond that. Beyond that. 
Does the Bible use symbolisms all the time for us to picture God in our mind? It does, sitting on the throne. Right? Sitting on the throne. Now, have you ever seen it? But there's like a lot of art from the Middle Ages or so where they would show God in a painting or something like this, except his head was kind of in a cloud. They, they wouldn't actually paint a face to portray God. Why? Because they, the artists didn't think they could. How can we do this? How can, how can we paint something that looks that's God? See this? No. They didn't all take that. <laughs> Others did. Da Vinci. Da Vinci. Ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, right? God, man, touching the fingers, that thing. You've seen that before? Well, that's a depiction of God. But my point is, we can't get our arms around this because he does not have a created body like ours. <coughs> now, how does that work out? Is it just that he's like this light? He's like this cloud? He's like this feeling? We can't say. Is he light? He is light. Could he be a cloud? Well, he's appeared as a cloud, but all of these things that I'm saying are things that us, that we in our human existence comprehend. Right? In other words, once you're dead, and now your soul is freed from your body, and you're in an existence that's not worldly, that's not finite, that's not actually existing creation, you're beyond that, how will God appear to you then? What will you grasp then? I, I, I venture to say that you're not going to be confused. You're not going to be wondering. You're going to know God. And you're going to know Christ, by the way. Scriptures are clear about that. You're going to know him. You're going to see him and know him. Pretty cool. We are to be concerned with hearing, believing, and obeying God, not visualizing him. It's the difference of the focus, right? Let me say this. Does every church that has the statues in the front, you've seen it? Has anybody not seen that before? I mean in a picture or something like that, right? In front of a cathedral or something like this, right? Where they have like icons up there, you know, Jesus, the apostles, Mary, all this stuff. Have you seen this before? Yeah, everybody's seen this before, right? Do you know that every religion that has those doesn't worship those? In fact, most don't. Roman Catholics do not worship those. They're not taught to worship them. They're a visual reminder of whoever that is. Now, does that mean that they get it right? <laughs> no. So, for instance, they might pray to St. Peter, right? Or pray to Mary. Is that unscriptural? Yes, that's very unscriptural, correct. But that's not who they're worshiping in the worship service. They don't have a service to worship Mary, for instance. That would clearly be blasphemy. They don't have that. They don't do that. Do they recognize Mary? Do they talk about Mary? Do they focus on Mary sometimes? Messages, things like this? They do. Yeah. Is it right? No, it's wrong. Because really what they should be doing is focusing on God. Right? It's wrong. Yeah, we're out of time. So we'll pick back up right here, talking about God is a, is a spirit. We'll talk about some of the worship. Then we'll go through some verses. It's going to be exciting. So if you... Didn't read chapter uh, chapter two in its entirety last in preparation for today. Please read chapter two in its entirety. 
You do not need to read, no homework for reading additional paragraphs. You could read paragraph one again. I mean, you could literally do this upstairs while you're waiting for the service because it's that short, but don't. Do it at home. Sometime during the middle of the week would be ideal to help refresh it in your mind. And if you didn't take the time to look up the scripture references that are in the confession for this paragraph, it would be a good time for you to do it. Okay? Let's close with a word of prayer.